from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the new world of carbon capture, smart city jobs of the future today, how to lead within the insanity of sustainability, and a conversation with a vegan hippie chick with a race car. Ladies and gentlemen, start your ingenuity this week on 350. It's July 15th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm here in GreenBiz Studio with our senior editor, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. Welcome back. Thanks. I had a few days. I was in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho at the Sun Valley Forum on Resilience uh, created by our good friend Amy Christensen. We'll talk a little bit about that a couple times in this episode. Um, how, how was your week here in uh, home base? Good, good. Took a little field trip of my own down to the Salinas Valley, sort of the central coast of California's ag heartland for an interesting event on the future of agriculture tech. This is that uh, Forbes uh, thing. I went to that last year, and it was struck last year that uh, during the entire event, I stayed for most of it, the words that never came up was climate change. Was that any different this year? They just weren't talking about it before. Things appear to have changed at least a little bit. There is a lot of talk about drought, several panel panel structured specifically around drought and how that's more likely to become more extreme in the face of climate volatility. So it seems like maybe cracking through a little bit there, but we'll have to see in the long term. Some seeds of hope and egg jack. <laughs> yes. Well, let's jump right into the week in review. So I loved the piece this week from um, our editor-at-large and good friend Bob Langert. Uh, Bob, as most people know, is the uh, former vice president of sustainability at McDonald's, had a pretty much a 30-year run at the hamburger company, and wrote a piece that's called The Three Ps for Leading the Insanity of Sustainability. And this is a perspective of, of you know, from someone at the top uh, of a company, of a big company, and what she or he goes through in a typical day or a typical week, typical month in terms of the just sort of the craziness of, of different perspectives and points of view and demands and appreciation or lack thereof recognition of for what they do. And it just, you know, he had some pretty good advice on how to stay sane in what he calls a schizoid role. Yeah, he has his helpful little breakdown of three Ps. So you've got passion, have that extreme conviction to sort of elicit buy-in from others. Also patience, given that these things take time, you're often working with small teams, and then persistence. So given that you're working with small teams, sometimes constrained budget, you need to sort of 
keep the fire going, keep things moving. Um, so it's interesting stuff that seemed to resonate. I've seen this piece being passed around a little bit on social media. I've had some some good comments on people sort of saying, yeah, I can relate to this. It reminds me, Joel, of how you joke or not so jokingly sometimes talk about sort of the, the group therapy dynamic that can emerge within corporate sustainability. Sure, I know. When, when we get um, sustainability executives together for our Green Biz Executive Network, which is exactly that, it's about, uh, well, 20, 20 to 25 companies in the room at any given time. Um, but we have 80 members. Um, yeah, I mean, we call it peer-to-peer learning and yeah, they call it group therapy because as different as, let's say, Tiffany's is from McDonald's, is from General Motors, is from uh, you know Google or Apple or Avon or Campbell Soup or Citibank, they're all kind of the same in terms of the, the way, the kinds of issues they're dealing with, uh, the kinds of, of challenges they face internally in terms of both from their leadership and from from the rank and file and in terms of you know being seen as as critical making their own case anyway it it's it, it's just fascinating and i think you know bob who uh you know when he when he retired we honored him on stage at the green biz uh 2014 i guess maybe it was 2015 15. i've lost track yeah 2015 um, you know, I, I call them out as sort of the set set the bar for what a sustainability professional inside a big company really wants to be. He knows his stuff. Yeah. And when it comes to sort of how this mastery that in-house sustainability experts have to develop, it was funny. We had another great piece this week by our senior writer, Heather Clancy, and she looked at a topic that, that I commend her. I, my eyes might have glazed over a little bit. She was looking at phasing out refrigerants. And why that doesn't necessarily have to mean using more energy. So it's really this sort of interesting dynamic where um, we've known for a long time that a lot of the uh, refrigerants, these chemicals that help especially food companies keep things frozen, but also help with building heating and cooling, a lot of your day-to-day nitty-gritty HVAC stuff. Um, we've, we've known that those aren't good for the climate. Um, obviously, the emissions contributing greenhouse gases and the overall issues that arise there. Um, But what Heather sort of looked at was how companies are having to balance these issues around their refrigerants with other climate priorities. So how do you balance your overall emissions with these sort of maybe wonkier priorities? I think one of the most significant things going on here is that most uh, of the current uh, refrigerants on the market have an extremely high what's called a global warming potential, which is that molecule for molecule relative to plain old uh, carbon dioxide. And they they have many times, dozens or even in some cases, hundreds of times the global warming potential. And uh, there's uh, U.S. law says that the U.S. portfolio, uh, real estate portfolio managers and equipment providers have to phase out the current uh, refrigerants by 2020. This was a deadline set almost 30 years ago. And so that's going to be banned from new equipment, at least uh, in, in the United States and other developed countries. So companies like Ingersoll Rand, which is the train division of, of, of um, air conditioning systems, is working uh, feverishly, as it were, to uh, come up with refrigerants uh, that will replace that 
R one twenty three as it's called that with it has a much lower global warming potential. Yeah, not a cheap endeavor. They're committing five hundred million dollars on R and D to surmount this challenge, and then Honeywell is also planning to spend about twice that amount. So getting into the billions here to look at production of low global warming potential refrigerants, insulation, aerosols, and solvents. Um, so it kind of reminds me when I'm reporting on transportation stuff, how you get into sort of wonky, maybe not sexy logistics things, but they have this outsized impact outside in terms of both climate as well as an outsized financial impact in some ways. Yeah, and, and according to Navigant Research that these systems consume as much as 40% of all the electricity required by a given building. So this is this is no small thing, and uh, if they can really do this, uh, well, cool. <laughs> yes. Speaking of cool. Speaking of cool and shifting paradigms and all that, uh, I also did a fun little story this week. This has been sort of in the making for a while. Looking at, we hear a lot about this uh, evolving trend towards smart cities uh, when you're looking at a massive predicted uptick in global urban populations, um, what that means for how cities sort of organize themselves. So uh, one thing that's been talked about a little bit uh, is sort of how that affects the jobs that cities are hiring for, the entire public sector job market. You're getting a couple of these quirky jobs out there that are already being established, like nightmares. That's uh, Amsterdam. Nightmare. Well, what, nightmare. Is, what is a night? I mean, I've had a nightmare. But what's, <laughs> what's a nightmare? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one. So Amsterdam, city with admittedly active nightlife, mm-hmm. uh, was the first one to jump into this space. They held a summit this year convening people interested in, quote unquote, the economic and cultural value of the night. So sort of looking at we have this nonstop 24 hour economy that we hear about a lot when it comes to media and other things like that. But they're sort of looking at what that means on the ground for how a city runs itself. Well, that's an interesting take on the question. What's your day job? <laughs> I know. Right? How about this chief citizen officer? That's interesting. What is, what's up with that? So this one is a little more nebulous. I'm not sure if there is a city that has actually appointed someone to be a chief citizen officer. And in some ways, that sounds kind of like a meaningless term because like a mayor is elected by citizens to represent them in office. So what does that mean? But so really the idea here is that um, as technology sort of changes the way citizens interact with government, you can crowdsource a lot more ideas. You can have people submitting complaints to the city through a mobile app, all sorts of different permutations. Um, There might be a need to sort of more explicitly formalize that relationship, have somebody that's focused full-time on collecting citizen input in these different ways. Um, So it sort of is a little bit of a variation on all of these employee engagement roles that we hear about in the corporate sector, just sort of really making sure you're on the pulse of what's happening. Yeah, some of these you've, uh, we have a little bit more common, like the Chief Resilience Officer of the Rockefeller Foundation created this 100 Resilient Cities initiative a number of years ago where they've funded uh, chief resilience officers in 100 cities, including our very own city of Oakland, California. Um, and and then the chief data officer, which is sort of as the world of hacking and apps uh, starts to uh, you know loom larger, the big data and all of that. Uh, but are some of these other ones, uh, gonna, are we going to be seeing more of these or are these kind of one-offs? 
So one that is already a more focal area of activity is around mobility and transportation. So old school Department of Transportations that were focused on buses and highways are having to evolve pretty quickly, especially in big urban areas. Um, You've got a chief bicycle officer now in a couple of different cities. Um, I would not be surprised at all to see this evolve into a more holistic role like a chief mobility officer, somebody that's really digging into all these issues we hear about around ride sharing how you regulate uber um or things like uh, autonomous self-driving cars and and how you integrate those into planning how you build out city infrastructure so as i said at the top of the show uh i was uh, spent part of this week in beautiful Sun Valley, Idaho, at the Sun Valley Forum on Resilience. Now, this is an event put on by Amy Christensen, a good good friend of ours, former uh, White House climate person who's been in, at, the, at the nexus of so many uh, global initiatives uh, around sustainability from the United Nations to our own Verge conferences. Uh, this is the second year she's put, put this on, and you think about wow, Resilience, Sun Valley, it's a, it's a pretty rich place to be. Um, it's actually an interesting place. There are about half the people uh, who live in and around the Sun Valley, which is uh, Haley and Ketchum, Idaho, and these little towns are on some kind of uh, public assistance. And there's a, you know, very, a very big wealth economy there, but a lot of service economy. And so, yeah, and they've, they've got one electric line coming into the valley. And if anything happens there, they're, you know, out of power, out of luck. So just looking at what does resilience mean in um, Southern Idaho in, in this town? And Amy, because of her good work and and great connections, and she's had um, just a whole range of people over the last two years from Cory Booker and Paul Hawken and a number of others. I spoke there along with my co-author, Mark Puck Mickleby, the co-author of our book, The New Grand Strategy. I did did a talk there. And uh, one of the other people was a race car driver named Lalani Munter. Have you heard of her, Lauren? I have. We actually ran a Q&A with her from our friends over at the Green Sports blog a couple months ago. So I knew sort of the bare minimum about sort of her unique approach to race car driving. So Lilani Munter is a, is a biology graduate turned race car driver and environmental activist. She's involved with a whole bunch of animal rights issues and uh, very much an advocate of solar and electric vehicles and has uh, really tried to bring a lot of that into her career as a NASCAR racer. Um, She has, I think it's the first uh, NASCAR race uh, pit that's run off of solar energy. And uh, she's been testing all sorts of uh, electric and other vehicles on the track. I know she's, uh, she's a big booster of of Tesla's and owns, uh, owns at least one of those and um, really, really interesting. And, um, Gave a talk there, and I caught up with her afterwards just to uh, have a little conversation about some of the things that uh, she's talking about and are interested in, and uh, let's listen in. So, Lalani, uh, you talked to a lot of different groups, and I'm curious what the business audience thinks, uh, how they respond to what you talk about. Yeah, you know, I mean, it depends on the business. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm sort of, as a race car driver, pretty picky about who I work with. So, um, you know, my ethics are something that carries over into my racing career, right? So I don't I don't work with any companies that produce any fossil fuels. So no oil, no coal, no natural gas, 
no companies that test on animals or produce any fur or leather or meat or dairy products. Um, so the pool of companies that I'm talking to is obviously a lot smaller than, than most of the people that drive race cars. Um, all of my race cars, interestingly, since 2007, which is, um, it was around 2006 that I started publicly addressing climate change issues on my racing website. Um, but since 2007 on, every single sponsor that's been on my race car have been companies that are leaders in, you know, either, like I said, the recycling uh, paper industry. That was my sponsor when I was in the Indie Pro Series. I've had LED lighting, wind power, solar power. Um, as I said, we power my pit box using 100% solar power. I drive my Tesla to and from all the races um, and meet with the fans so that they can see an electric car up close um, because you don't see a whole lot of Teslas at the NASCAR tracks. Um, and, and they've all been companies that have never been in racing before all of those sponsors that have come on my cars and and I think it's because they're understanding that hey like we can run around and preach to the choir and and advertise the, to people that already are involved with these things or we can go out and talk to the people who don't get it yet and those are really the people that we need to talk to the most and that's where you know, we have to bring the message to them where they're hanging out. They're not going to come, you know, to see an environmental documentary necessarily. They're they're not maybe going to come to a clean energy event uh, like this, but they are going to be at Daytona. And so I bring the messages to them where they are hanging out. I, I imagine some of your sponsors probably get more value from your work than, say, a Valvoline would because you're actually introducing them to not just a brand but a product they didn't know about. Yeah, it's something new. It's de it's definitely something different, right? Like my cars are are usually cause-related. Oftentimes they're actually nonprofit um, organizations that were promoting, you know, the shift towards renewable energy or like I worked with a group of veterans from on Capitol Hill that are fighting for clean energy up there. So so a lot of it is like advocacy and awareness. Um, sometimes it's a specific product like I did a, a solar car that was with a group called Prairie Gold Solar um, and, and that was the first time that we you know got to use the solar pit box and and the interesting thing we had happen was actually in the pits um, you know most of the race teams are using generators, diesel generators to power their pit boxes and we were having other race teams come over and ask me about our solar charging because they realized, not because they wanted to go green, but because it was a competitive advantage because my pit was totally quiet. They didn't have this loud diesel, you know, noise around them. So he didn't have to shout to, you know, tell the crew what to do. It was much quieter and that's just better for communication skills. Um, so in some cases, I think we're going to get people to make the switch to these more green products from, from things that I didn't even think of myself. I'm thinking of it because I want to reduce my carbon footprint, you know, but this guy's thinking of it because he's like, well, I want to win the race and, you know, we're going to be able to communicate better if we have that quiet solar charging instead of the diesel generator. So um, it's interesting, you know, bringing, anytime you bring new products in to this new world, you know, you're going to discover new things, new little quirks like that about it. That's, that supports my long-term contention that green products sell meant to the masses, not just because they're green or not only because they're green, but because they're better. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, I drive a Tesla Model S. I think Tesla is a great example of that, right? People see my car. I live in North Carolina. That's where NASCAR is sort of all the race teams are. And oftentimes when I come out of the grocery store and running errands, uh, I will have people out in the parking lot just like standing around my car waiting to ask me questions um, because they're really curious. Uh, they, they've never seen a Tesla before and they've heard about them or read about them, but they don't know. They want to know how long can you drive for? Where do you charge? All these little questions. Um, and I'm really passionate about electric cars, so I'll stand in the parking lot for half an hour <laughs> and yeah. give them a whole tour of the car. Same thing happened when the solar panels went up on the roof of my house. All of these neighbors um, that I hadn't met before were coming over to talk to us about our solar panels or talk to us about the electric car. We have a rainwater collection system. And I think just leading by example, right? Like you just do it and then people around you, you know, are looking out their window and going, huh, she's driving off of solar. She hasn't been to a gas station for three years, you know, and, and, and I can see them as soon as I say I haven't been to a gas station since September 2013. I immediately can see people like calculating how much money they've spent at gas stations. <laughs> and and that is really effective. You know, it's not just it's not just that the car looks cool and is fun to drive and fast. It's that you can save a lot of money in the long term. On, on fuel. I've driven across the country from New York to San Francisco, you know, using the electric car, charging at the charging stations, spent exactly zero dollars on, on fuel. And it was a 5,000 mile road trip. I was sort of zigzagging across the country. It wasn't direct. Um, that's incredible. That's like a life changing thing. Since I got my Tesla, I used to always fly to DC when I would have meetings there. I live in Charlotte. It's a quick flight, but you know, it's going to be like 300, 350 bucks. Um, um, I've started driving now, now that I have the Tesla, like I really enjoy, first of all, the driving is fun. Second of all, there's all these superchargers on my way up. So it's very convenient. Plug in, grab a, a coffee, get back in my car and keep going and it's free. And so it's changed actually my behavior that since I got my Tesla, when I used to buy maybe four or five plane tickets a year round trip to DC, now I've bought zero since then because I find it to be much more fun and convenient and cheaper for me to drive. I'm saving a ton of money. So there's all kinds of advantages to it. Um, and, I, and I think just the more those of us who can afford to be early adopters and can put solar panels up on our roof, we need to do those things so that the people around us can see that this is a reality. This is not some pie in the sky idea in the future that you can drive off of solar. This is something that's like happening right now. Um, and that's powerful to not just see it, you know, in an article, but to look out your window and see your neighbor doing it. And I think that has really, you know, more power than us giving speeches or trying to tell people. Right. You just need to show them. It needs to be real. Well, speaking of real, last thing, you started talking about population lately, and that's really interesting to me because, first of all, nobody in the environmental movement is really talking about that. And you've made this part of your spiel over the past, just re fairly recently. Talk only a little- Only twice. <laughs> only twice, including once today here in Sun Valley. Uh, Talk a little bit about why you're doing that and what you hope to see uh, happen in terms of changing minds. Yeah, you know, I just found I got really frustrated at that nobody was talking about it. Um, and uh, it all started when I started talking publicly about it. It was because I was at a screening for Racing Extinction and I was doing a Q&A and somebody in the audience asked me, you know, is there anything in the movie that you guys didn't address that you wish had been addressed? 
And I immediately said population, because population has been something that I've been concerned with since college. Um, my biochemistry professor at UCSD, one day I came in, and he told all of us to close our notebooks. We're not going to talk about biochemistry. We're going to talk about population. And he showed us a film about human population. And I was devastated. I mean, I remember walking all the way across the campus with this professor to talk about it. And I decided that day I was not going to have children. I was not going to you know, participate in this this incredible problem that we have 7.4 billion people with a growth rate of over 200,000 people per day. Um, and, and many of the studies that ecologists have done have shown that, you know, 2 billion people is about what the world can support if, if all of us are living in like relative prosperity. And so it's not sustainable. This, our population growth is not sustainable. Even if we're all going vegan and we're all driving electric cars and we're all using solar panels, um, that's an incredible demand on the planet that's growing every single day by vast amounts. And I just wanted to normalize us finally talking about it and, and feeling like I can say I'm child-free by choice, you know, um, and have that be like sort of a normal thing. Nobody talks about it, so it becomes like stigmatized. And I think if we just start saying, yeah, I'm child-free by choice, you know, my husband and I decided not to have kids because we're actually really concerned about human overpopulation and we feel like this is something that's not being addressed. The more that people talk about it, the more normal it will become and the easier it will become for women to, to talk about it and men. And I, and I had two orphans come up to me when I was in Aspen. It was really powerful because I mentioned briefly in my little population spiel in Aspen that if you really have that innate, like, undeniable need, a paternal, maternal need to be a parent, you know, there's 132 million orphans that are looking for homes. And when I got off the stage in Aspen, I had these two beautiful young girls come up to me and give me hugs and say, thank you so much for talking about the orphans. We were both adopted. Um, it meant so much to us because if my mom had had her own kids, she would have never found me. And they gave me a big hug and it just it meant so much to me. And I felt like this is something, you know, this is something I think the audience is ready to talk about. Um, I was nervous at first bringing it up because it is a very sensitive issue and people do get really defensive. There's a lot of emotion involved in, involved in talking about population. Um, but the two times that I have spoken about it, you know, I've seen the vast majority of the audience nodding and like saying, thank you. Yes, we do need to talk about this. And then like maybe the other third is sort of uncomfortably shifting in their chair. Um, but I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've sort of been out there as, as somebody that, confronts things um, and isn't afraid to take them to places, unusual places like, you know, bringing the environmental message to the racing world. And so I feel like I can't then be afraid to, to talk about population because I'm scared of I'm going to upset people. I just feel like, you know, let's not ignore the elephant in the room. It's there. We all know it's there. I don't know why there's this great silence of us all deciding that we're just going to avoid the issue and stick our heads in the sand. <laughs> and maybe someday being childless will be as normal as owning solar powers or an electric car. Uh, so yeah. so Lalani Munter, uh, eco chick, vegan, race car driver, scuba diver, movie producer, uh, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me.
So as for what's going on at Green Biz this week, uh, we mentioned earlier in the show that one of our good friends, Amy Christensen, was the organizer of this little shindig in Sun Valley last week. So Joel, you had a chance to catch up with her as well and talk about some of this, right? Yeah, I mean, Amy's, as I said, is a remarkable person. She Her, her career has taken her uh, from Baker and McKenzie and the World Bank and the U.S. Department of Energy and Google.org and and more recently, as I said, working with the UN and uh, World Climate Summit and, and so many other endeavors, just a, a woman about town and, and it really uh, a, a change maker, a catalyst in, in so many different ways. And I, you know, just brought her aside at the, at the event, wanted to hear a little bit more about why she thought we needed a event on resilience in Sun Valley. So, Amy, tell me why you wanted to start another environmental conference. Really for two main reasons. One, uh, I'm based in Sun Valley, Idaho, a very special place, but that's also very much at risk from climate change. And yet we can be a model in a petri dish to really innovate the solutions to climate change, whether it's solar power, electric vehicles, uh, shifting to a local food economy. And so wanted to bring in from around the world people who are the innovators so that we could learn from them and collaborate with them to pilot their technologies and business models and approaches here, which we've already started to do. So bring in more of those innovators to help us with our work on the ground. At the same time, I wanted to connect them to each other. These are incredible innovators who over a career of 25 years I've gotten to know from wearing so many different hats, working at Google, working in the Clinton administration on energy, um, in my advisory work, wanted to bring all of them together to find ways to collaborate and innovate as well. And watching those conversations spark off of each other has been so incredible. And people to say, I met this person, I've met this partner, this is what we're going to do together. And you don't even know. We won't be able to track it all. And yet watching it happen is incredibly exciting and inspiring. And that's what I wanted to do with the forum. People think of Sun Valley as this rich enclave of skiers and, you know, outdoor people. Why is resilience an issue here? So Sun Valley is, yes, there is wealth here. There's second homeowners. There are people who move here full time after having very lucrative careers. But there are also 50% of our population on some form of public assistance. It's a very seasonal industry. The ski industry, the tourism industry, 70% of this county's economy relies on recreation and tourism. And that recreation and tourism is happening in the heart of the winter and the heart of the summer. So when we have changes in snowfall and we have the second largest fire in the country hit us in the middle of our tourist season in August of 2013, we it devastates our economy. It devastates those people who are running small businesses and who are eking out a livelihood on three jobs a year because of the seasonal nature. What our job is to diversify that economy me, fill in those what we call shoulder seasons, and create really high quality year-round jobs in growing local food, in installing solar panels. And we launched our first program in energy because we knew we needed to reduce our own impact on climate change, and with a power system 35% coal that's undermining our very industry of skiing that we rely on, that we could go to solar, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and create these year-round high quality paying jobs. And we Already, as a result of our program, we've had the first merger of the solar industry here locally, two companies coming together because of the increased demand and the need to be more efficient and create more jobs here locally. It's it's incredibly exciting opportunity, but it really is an... Um, a community that's at risk, and yet we have these solutions. And so it felt like it was this perfect Petri dish, the right size, and with demographics that are relevant to other communities. 
So you've brought together this really interesting group of people and people who span your amazing career and contacts, um, Paul Hawken and Lelani Munter and, and a number of other great people. What does success look like from you? If, you? if this really works the way you want, what do you want to see happen? I want to see people in our local community. We have these incredible partners from our local schools to the nonprofits to the business leaders and our political leaders to be inspired and informed what they've heard here today and to start programs and be further motivated to move even more quickly to put those programs, those practices, those new business ideas into action. So watching us have more local food here. We are growing barley and alfalfa. Our water policies incentivize people to grow these commodities that use a lot of water. We need to change those policies, but also work with those farmers to show them, even with the current policies, how they can grow local food, how that will improve their bottom line and create more jobs, work with them to do that, and bring in the next generation of farmers. So that's one concrete way is we have a lot of young people who want to be doing organic farming, who want to be growing local food. We can work with them as a result of this event to bring in those people who've done that elsewhere to collaborate with them and take it forward here on the ground. So it's that concrete work here on our resilience that I hope to see as a result of this that happens much more quickly and effectively. Secondly, um, the people who, as I said, connect to each other, who don't live here, but who've connected as a result of this event, together launching new funds or investing in each other, investing in each other's companies. I've already seen deals being made. We had Gotham Greens here and Viraj Puri's incredible work putting uh, food growing on top of grocery stores and urban rooftops and bringing food to local communities and creating jobs, making that food, healthy food more accessible. I had a number of people talk about how they wanted to invest in, partner with, bring Gotham Greens to their community. So those are the kinds of impacts I'm hoping we can see. And by highlighting the, big, the greatest innovators, I'm hoping people can find this forum each year as a place where they can drop in be inspired, informed, sparked, connected to the people with whom they can collaborate in a new way. It's a smaller venue, and we're creating community here. So really, that's what I love. It's only our second year. People said to me, that's what we're doing. We're creating community of connectivity and action. Making connections, creating community, that's what a good conference is all about. Amy Christensen, thanks so much. Thank you, Joel. stories we had this week was from our senior writer Mike Hauer and he took a look at companies to watch in this emerging carbon capture and storage space that lumps in everybody like the startups global thermostat and co2 solutions and carbon engineering as well as much bigger companies that are maybe a little more notorious in the climate space like shell and chevron um so to make sense of this all we wanted to bring in a local expert and lucky for us noah deitch who is the executive director of the nonprofit center for carbon removal right here in oakland was kind enough to join us how's it going noah great happy to be here Awesome. So let's sort of set the groundwork here. Our audience is very familiar with the issues surrounding carbon emissions, but what are we really talking about when we delve into topics like carbon removal or these related areas, carbon capture and sequestration? That's a great question. And I think it really breaks down to two points. 
One is we have to do something to reduce the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere and do that rapidly. But in order to meet our climate goals, we also have to figure out how to clean up all of the CO2 that we've put into the atmosphere and has stayed there and likely will remain there. So when we talk about carbon capture and storage, we could really be talking about a, a range of things. One are pollution controls. Essentially, you put it on existing sources of CO2 emissions to prevent more CO2 from going into the atmosphere. So that's maybe what some of the fossil fuel incumbents are looking at? Exactly. The other angle is how do you deal with the CO2 that's already in the air and use a variety of processes to take that CO2 out? And sort of what's the significance of removal there? Is it going carbon negative, that sort of space? So yeah, when we talk about carbon removal, there are a number of reasons that we'd, we'd want to do that. One is it enables us to meet our climate goals. Basically, all of the climate experts out there say that we're going to need large-scale carbon removal in the not-too-distant future if we actually want to meet the climate goals that we set in Paris this past December. The other reason is there are lots of tricky to decarbonize pieces of the economy. Aviation, long-haul shipping, even the manufacturing of certain goods and services like steel and cement. Figuring out how we can continue to enable those industries to exist, but clean up the CO2 from the atmosphere elsewhere is critical for us meeting our deep decarbonization targets. So what's the potential here, Noah? As you well know, our... Our old friend, uh, author and entrepreneur Paul Hawken has the project Drawdown, where they they say they can actually draw down the carbon. I think by twenty thirty five or so. Is that what you or twenty forty five maybe? It, 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 do you see that actually the potential, or is it just at this point still working at the margins? So right now, many of these solutions are in their infancy. But that said, once we start reducing emissions dramatically and start investing heavily in the research and development of these carbon removal solutions, I expect that we will be able to actually clean up more carbon from the atmosphere than we emit. So what's your organization doing around that? So what we try and do at the Center for Carbon Removal is really create a platform for a broad variety of carbon removal solutions to flourish. We don't only look at some of the carbon capture and storage industrial technologies, but also many of the land-based and, and terrestrial carbon sequestration options that are out there. So plants have been capturing CO2 from the air for billions of years. They've got tons of R&D behind them. They work great. So how do we harness photosynthesis to store carbon in soils, store carbon in biomass of forests and other ecosystems? And how do we create the policy and industry engagement needed to make those solutions a reality instead of just something that scientists are saying we urgently need to meet these climate goals? Mm -hmm. And we mentioned that Mike, uh, our senior writer, Mike Howard, wrote about some of the interesting companies operating in this space. But I'm curious to get your take when it comes to these solutions. Who's doing interesting things? What are you personally most intrigued by right now? So I'm actually intrigued by a broad portfolio of things. When we're talking about industrial sector work, I think there's very encouraging activity happening in the direct air capture space. This is one area that many scientists and experts wrote off as impossible or way too expensive. But there are companies who are developing commercial prototypes right now of technologies that can take CO2 out of the air and use that CO2 either to make fuels or some other good and eventually to sequester that CO2 underground. 
that's where I see a, a ton of promise and an unexpected area on the industrial side. Where I see the greatest opportunity for scale in the short term is the land sector. That there are so many solutions from how you graze your cattle to how you restore and manage forests that not only offer climate solutions, but economic development opportunities in rural areas that have historically struggled to have a climate-friendly economic growth plan, that there are ways to broaden the, the tent of stakeholders much more than in, in past years to really support the, the climate movement more broadly. So you mentioned economic development. I wanted to ask you about sort of the economics of this entire space. Where are we in sort of the cost curve with how expensive some of these technologies are? And how do you see all of that evolving? Some of these technologies are in their early stage of development. It's like solar back in the, the 70s or 80s, where the prototypes are out there, they work, they just cost an order of magnitude or two more than they need to to be economically viable. When it comes to some of the land-based solutions, many have co-benefits beyond carbon sequestration that justify the investments today, be it through reducing your fertilizer use, increasing the resiliency or the productivity of your crops. A key piece there is figuring out how to measure and verify the carbon that you actually sequester. And that's a, a key distinction between these solutions, is that if you're able to permanently lock CO2 back into geologic formations or into building materials like cements that don't degrade, we can be fairly confident that that carbon is sequestered. But on the land side, there are many approaches that potentially could release the carbon back into the air if something changes with the environment or with the management of that land that could undo some of the good work that we have done in previous decades. So Noah, what's needed here? Usually with uh, technology advancements like this, there's there's three big levers to pull. There's there's technology, there's policy, and finance or market development. What do you see needed here in terms of if we were to you know pick the low hanging fruit to use a common term uh, to get you know some of uh, to really demonstrate the potential of carbon removal? What would be the technology and what would be the lever that needed to be pulled? So I think it's all of the above in terms of what we need to do today. On the technology side, we need a lot more innovation and development. Much of that is going to come from government initially because there aren't markets, but that's something that can change. That with smart policy and smart regulation, there are opportunities for low-hanging fruit for many of these technologies across the industrial and the land-based sectors. And so it's really critical that we think about doing this whole portfolio of things today and work on all of those different dimensions. For me, I think the most important piece is understanding that we need to not just reduce emissions, but that we need to clean up carbon as well, is something that's misunderstood by many in the climate conversation today. That we have focused historically just on how do we reduce emissions, but we no longer have time to just focus on that piece. And so if leaders across government and business step up and say, we are committed to not just reducing our emissions, but actually cleaning up excess CO2, that can start the cascade of conversations in the business and the finance and the policy world that are needed to unlock the potential of these solutions. 
In terms of the broader climate discussion, one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you about was sort of some controversy that seems to be brewing over proposals for different types of carbon capture subsidies. I got an email today from a senior campaigner at Friends of the Earth that said, let's call a spade a spade. This is an oil subsidy, plain and simple. How do you think about sort of with a lot of these clean technologies, we talk about shades of green, sort of different things along the spectrum. How do you think about these issues? So one of the things that was actually announced today was there was legislation to extend a tax credit for carbon capture and storage in in the Senate. And that legislation will likely be eligible for mostly fossil fuel projects in the near term. But it's critical that we figure out how to do things with fossil fuels today that are relevant to carbon removal in the future. And these are things like storing carbon underground, building infrastructure and ecosystems to transport CO2 and to to foster the growth of those solutions across the whole value chain. And by investing in fossil fuel capture devices today, there are likely lots of positive externalities that spill over into the carbon removal world. And so there are shades of green here, and I think what's critical is to make sure that if we start with fossil carbon capture projects today, that the community pushes those projects to start taking carbon from the air and not from the ground as soon as possible. It sounds really exciting, really promising, and it sounds like at the end of the day what we really need is leadership. So uh, thanks for being a leader here, uh, and thanks for stopping by GreenBiz. Noah Deitch, Executive Director of the Center for Carbon Removal. And thank you all as well. Switching gears to the week ahead, we have a couple of cool things coming up. On July 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern or noon Pacific time, our senior writer Barbara Grady will be helping to lead a clean energy finance forum Twitter chat. That's a group out of the Yale Center for Business and the Environment that will be focused on thawing the market for commercial energy efficiency. So jump into that. The hashtag will be hashtag EcoFinanceChat. And in terms of stories on the horizon, I'll be doing a dispatch from the Future of Ag Tech event I mentioned, and we'll also have a look at a Next Generation's Plastic partnership from Jose Cuervo and Ford, as well as a look at schools in Hawaii and what they're doing around energy. So stay tuned for that. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find links to the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Thanks again to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. 